Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I went quite quickly from being just soul-destroyingly depressed to like, hang on a minute, this is really, really exciting. If we can just make it really easy for people to give their food away rather than throw their food away, then we can solve half of that enormous problem. And we don't have to wait for governments and we don't have to wait for businesses, all of whom are doing very close to little. We can just empower everyday people. After all, you know, it was billions of small actions that got us into this mess in the first place. So. Surely billions of small actions can help get us out of it. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello and greetings, everyone. We're really excited to be bringing you an amazing guest today. Tessa Clark's passion for sustainability in the environment seems so appropriate given world leaders are meeting at COP26 this week. You can say that again. I just wish that more world leaders cared as much about doing the right thing as Tessa clearly does. For sure. Now, Tessa is co-founder and CEO of the international food and household waste platform and app called Olio. That's spelled O-L-I-O. Olio was founded in 2015 and originally focused on food waste in the home. And as you'll hear in our fascinating conversation with Tessa, the statistics about how much we householders contribute to waste and to greenhouse gas emissions with our waste are totally staggering. They certainly are. Now, UK-based Tessa and her co-founder, who she met when they were at Stanford doing their MBA together, have just successfully closed a Series B fundraising round, raising $43 million from top-tier VC firms who've described its five-fold growth in the past year as phenomenal. More than 5 million users in 53 countries are now reducing not only food waste, but also other household goods as well. Yeah, it's so fantastic. And I think Olio is clearly very needed, as you can see from that growth they've just experienced. And it's so great they've got this funding. Now, if you're a regular listener, you may remember we featured another Dynamo woman on the show some months ago who was focusing on preventing food waste, particularly from restaurants, hotels, and supermarkets. And that's Ronnie Khan from Oz Harvest in Australia. You know, you can kind of think of Oz Harvest as more of a B2B play, you could say, while Olio is more of a B2C and B2B play, you know, but that B2C part is so key because of all the food waste, half in fact, of all food waste globally comes from homes and not from commercial premises. Absolutely. In this episode, you're here 
how Tessa wished she'd made the time earlier in her career to stop and really reflect about what she was passionate about doing in in her career. Why working at Dyson, pioneering their e-commerce business was just so exhausting. How Tessa came up with the idea of Olio and how food waste globally results in greenhouse gas emissions that would make it the third largest country in emission terms in the world. Yeah, that is so incredible. And on that compelling note, let's dive in and get to know the determined and passionate Tessa Clark. Tessa, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you. Great to be here. We're very, very much looking forward to our conversation. Are you speaking to us from London? Is that right? From Wiltshire, actually, so about an hour and a bit west of London. Oh, great. Stonehenge countryside. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So, Tessa, what we like to do when we start a podcast for our listeners is just to ground who you are, is ask you a question, which is, if you were at a dinner party and you didn't know the people at the dinner party, how would you describe what you do today? I'm smiling because I'm sure there's far more interesting dinner party chat than what I do. But (laughs) um, here goes. So today I am co-founder and CEO of an app called Olio, and we exist to tackle the enormous problem of waste that we have in our homes and in our society, really. And we do that by connecting people with their neighbours so you can give away, run, throw away your spare food and other household items. It's such a phenomenal idea and concept, and we will explore it in much more detail in a moment. But before we do, it would be great just to go back in time. And if you think about your childhood, where did you grow up? So I grew up on my parents' farm in the northeast of the UK in North Yorkshire with my sort of two younger brothers. So there was sort of 18 months between each of us. And we had, you know, I guess sort of rose-tinted spectacles of, of hindsight, a fairly sort of idyllic childhood, although at the time it felt fairly hardcore because we had to work incredibly hard on our family farm. We didn't grow up with any sort of material wealth. I guess sort of money was always pretty tight. And it was a fairly, I guess, kind of isolated childhood. So it's kind of our family unit. And when you grow up on a farm, you don't really have the concept of sort of work and life or certainly not work-life balance. It's just kind of all smushes into one thing. So I spent most of my childhood trying to sort of corral my workforce of two, my my two younger brothers who were often quite reluctant to do the tasks that we had been set and just spent a lot of time outdoors in nature with the animals. Wow. Well, I grew up in a village actually in the UK, but I wasn't on a farm. So, but I can imagine what it would have been like. How would your parents have described you as a child? Ooh, good question. I think fairly determined and focused, hardworking. So I always, I mean, I I sort of look back and I (laughs) psychoanalyze myself and fail to come up with any major insights. But it it is interesting because I I was always sort of very driven academically. So I always kind of worked, I think, sort of much harder than all my peers. And I think perhaps it was because I, I knew that I didn't want to be a farmer and I knew that I most certainly didn't want to be a farmer's wife. And I didn't sort of have any other role models or other sort of ways of life around me. So I think I just sort of knew that school was potentially an avenue to something else. When I wasn't working on the farm, I was studying sort of 
really hard. You got a first class degree from Cambridge University, didn't you? Yeah, um, it paid off. Hurrah. <laughs> it certainly did. It certainly did. Big time. What did you imagine that you'd do after uni with a degree like that? Well, I didn't, I think is the honest answer. I've spent the vast majority of my life sort of pursuing other people's definition of success. So I knew that as a child, sort of being successful meant that I had to kind of work hard at school and do some extracurricular activities. And then leaving school, I knew that going to Oxford or Cambridge was considered successful. So I worked really hard to get there. I did English, history, economics and general studies at A-level. And I didn't quite sort of love any of them enough to have that as my sole subject. And then a teacher at school told me about social and political sciences at Cambridge. So I just went ahead and applied to study that. And then when it came to graduating, I still had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. But society sort of pathway said that, you know, if you do well at Oxford or Cambridge, then you probably want to go off and go into banking or strategy consulting. And I I knew kind of very instinctively that I didn't really want to be a banker. But strategy consulting sounded really interesting. Is you get to work in lots of different industries, you get to work in lots of different functions within industries, and um, you get a lot of exposure to different people. And that, to me, seemed like a great starting point for someone who didn't want, know what they wanted to do when they grew up. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure strategy consulting at BCG also helps, you know, that uh, CV process as well. It's also a great brand. Yeah. You know, I know that I was at McKinsey and for me that made a massive difference in opening doors and all that kind of thing. How long did you um, stay consulting? I was at BCG for three years. I reached the point where I realized that whilst I sort of enjoyed consulting, I didn't love it. And I wanted to do things. Um, So it was an incredible uh, learning opportunity and experience. But at the end of the day, I was quite impatient to do more than create very complicated Excel models and fancy PowerPoint slides. I actually wanted to do something with that sort of insight and information that we were gathering. Yeah. So what did you do? I joined EMAP Digital to head up a joint venture between EMAP and Channel 4 to create a new sort of teen digital brand. And it was a massive learning (laughs) about uh, when a joint venture should, or more importantly, should not be done. And that was a classic example of when a joint venture shouldn't be done, which was that there wasn't a real sort of problem that they were trying to solve and there wasn't a strong enough sort of creative vision. And so they ended up spending an awful lot of money um, trying to build something that didn't really come to fruition And I ended up having to recommend that we sort of stopped our activities because it was very clear to me that it wasn't going anywhere. Oh, that must have been frustrating to have been in the middle like that. Yeah, but also also quite courageous to to stand up and say, I think you should stop. Yeah, I I think sort of courage is something that I have demonstrated a number of times sort of in my career. Although at the time it doesn't feel like courage, it just feels like the right thing. And I for me personally, I've got my own kind of very strong moral compass. I will always do what I think is the right thing, no matter what the personal costs to me. So on more than one occasion, I have recommended that my own role be made redundant because I could just see it wasn't the right thing for the business. Yeah, I think you stayed at EMAP for a number of years and then made a really interesting jump to Dyson to be the managing director of their e-commerce business. What was that like? 
I did. Yeah, I, I did a, a small sort of two years out during that period in EMAP when I went to Stanford to study for my MBA. And that was where I met my now co-founder, Sasha. So that was definitely one of the best things to come out of my MBA experience. Giving my, The MBA was about giving myself confidence and a really kind of solid grounding in all aspects of business. And I definitely had that insight that kind of studying when you've chosen to do it proactively and you've fought to be able to do it is a very different experience than when you're just sort of following the trammel lines of society and, and doing what everyone expects of you. So I had a very different experience doing my MBA, came back, and then sort of cumulatively, I had at that point in time spent seven years at EMAP, but I had reached managing director level. I'd got sort of as far as I could realistically go. And I also kind of had this nagging concern that there was a risk that if I stayed any longer, I'd become institutionalized. And I really wanted to have more experiences, I guess, with other organizations. And so I was headhunted to join Dyson. And again, so retrospectively, when I look back on my career, one of the biggest mistakes that I've made is that I was actually probably a little bit lazy, if I'm being really honest. I didn't do the hard work at any point in time to really figure out what makes me passionate? What excites me? What do I care about? And so all of my sort of moves, you know, someone had contacted me and asked me to come and do it. And so definitely my advice to anyone else kind of earlier on in their path is to take that time out to do that hard work to figure out what you were put on this planet to do. Yeah. I've thankfully I've now discovered that. So hurrah, all's well that ends well. But you know, it took me too long to get here. Actually, let's let's talk a bit about Dyson. Dyson is an interesting brand. Certainly nowadays, I'm not sure if it had the cachet that it has today when you were there. What was it like being the managing director of the e-commerce business, which I would imagine was a new part of the business at the time? It was a brand new part of the business. So it was an incredible experience having the opportunity to be on the inside, working very closely alongside James. I met with him multiple times per week for four years. There were several takeaways from that experience. So one, I was recruited to take Dyson on a digital journey. And whilst the organization was very, very innovative in terms of its engineering, actually in terms of all other aspects of the business, it was not as innovative as you would expect. And certainly there was something very interesting about the geography. So their headquarters was essentially a field where there was 1,500 people working in Wiltshire. And so as a result of that, lots of people kind of moved to the area. They then settled down. They they sort of put down roots and have families and schools and, and that sort of stuff. And there were no other at the time major employers in the area, which meant there was a lack of turnover. And everyone had been employed sort of within sort of marketing and operations, which were the main units that I interacted with. They'd all been employed to work with retailers and to sell stuff via TV ads and print ads. And I was coming along trying to evangelize really about the future of going direct to consumers, selling via uh, sort of the Dyson.com website and increasing their digital budgets. You know, they were spending sort of less than 5% of marketing on digital activities. And it was a real uphill battle because if you recruit and pay people to make TV ads, then they're going to want to make TV ads. So it was very, very hard being the sole sort of agent of change. And it felt like I was pushing an enormous boulder up a hill constantly, just at every turn having to fight. I was also, for much of my time, the only senior woman. So that made it a very challenging environment to 
operate in. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's always hard, isn't it, to drive change within a a company, particularly at the beginning of that process. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And and it it really is seriously hard work, but uh, it sounds as if all the foundations that you put in place have really paid off. Yes, they have, but much of it was sort of was actually kind of after I left. So it is fairly thankless work, if I'm being honest, kind of laying the foundations and being kind of the only change agent in, in an organization. It's emotionally exhausting. So I do think it, if you find yourself in an environment where everyone is resistant to change, really profound change only happens from kind of the very top down. And unless you've got that, it can be a bit like sort of banging your head against a brick wall. And I do often say to people, I say, you know, why are you doing this? <laughs> Go somewhere where people don't think you're crazy, where you're kind of swimming with the tide rather than against it. Because often it's through people voting with their feet that organizations start to realize that they've got to change. So the sustainability space that I'm in right now is a classic example. I have so many people coming up to me saying, how can I persuade my organization that, you know, the climate crisis is real and it's important. We need to respond and you know, if people have the ability to do this, often the most powerful way to persuade an organization is if they won't listen and they won't change is to leave and to go yeah. find an organization that does embrace you and embrace that. And certainly at Olio, we've been a massive beneficiary of that. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a really important insight for people who think that they might not have power, but actually they do. Yeah, particularly in this really tight labour market that we're in right now, we we always, always, always have more power than we think. And organisations in which we operate, you know, some of them they can create this sense of almost like this sort of parallel universe. And when you're in it, it's so all-consuming. And when you step out, you know that it's. <laughs> Some elements of it don't make sense, but when you're in it, it's going to be really, really hard to escape. And it's only once you do actually get out that you realize, no, I wasn't the crazy one. It was that environment that was the crazy thing, but everyone was sort of trapped in it. Did you have any techniques when you're in roles to be able to sort of get on the balcony and get some perspective? Because you're right, sometimes pushing boulders uphill, it is all consuming and it's really hard sometimes. What worked for you, if anything? I don't think I had the answer to that, if I'm being really honest. Um, (laughs) I think it was just sort of dogged determination uh, and just utter conviction that this was the way the world was going. And I knew sort of in my heart of hearts that what I was saying was right, but it does take its toll. And that's why kind of after four years of doing that, I was exhausted. Yeah, I bet. Let's move on now to the light bulb moment for what's now the company that you co-founded Olio. What happened? So I was living in Geneva and moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men said to me that I had to toss away all of our uneaten food. And obviously, as we've covered, I'm a farmer's daughter. I have a pathological hatred of food waste or indeed waste of any variety. And so I stopped packing and instead bundled up my newborn and toddler and set out into the streets clutching this food, hoping to find someone to give it to. And the lady who was always in this kind of one spot for some reason wasn't there that day. And I did get a bit over emotional and teary about the fact that I'd gone to all this effort to try and give this food away and I'd failed. And I knew I shouldn't be doing this because the removal men were sort of drumming their fingers waiting for me to come back. 
So I end up kind of going back to my apartment and I, and I thought, well, you know, should I knock on my neighbor's doors? But I realized I haven't got time to do that. And also it'd be way too embarrassing and awkward. They might not want what I've got. So I went back to my apartment and when the packing men weren't looking, I smuggled the non-perishable foods into the bottom of my packing boxes. Uh, and that was the time. <laughs> yeah, that was the time when I just thought, oh my goodness, I'm probably performing a criminal offense right now, but, you know, and I'm not a criminal, but to me, it seemed even more criminal to put perfectly good food in the bin when I just knew there was someone probably within a hundred meters of me who would love that food. Problem was, I just didn't know about it. And at that point in time, I'd been working in the digital space for a good sort of decade or so. I knew there's an app for everything. And I couldn't believe it wasn't a simple app where I could just give my food away to my neighbors. Yay. I love that when you find a problem that you need to solve for yourself and yeah. then you create a business around it. So for our listeners, can you explain what Olio is? Yeah. So, well, I mean, Olio really exists to solve that problem that I experienced. So it connects you with your neighbors in a way that's sort of simple, it's safe, it's fast, it's fun, so that you can give away, run, throw away your spare food. And now also you can uh, use it to give away, run, throw away your other household items. So toiletries or books or kitchen appliances. And what's amazing about Olio is just sort of how well it works. So half of all the food added to the app is requested in less than 21 minutes and half of all the non-food items requested within four hours. And so what that means is it's just a really amazing experience that you kind of snap a photo of something and within minutes, a neighbor is requesting it. And generally kind of within hours, they are popping around to pick that up. It's just kind of an all round, just massive dose of goodness because you you feel great. You're kind of saving something from the bin. You're giving something to someone for free that they really want. So you're making them really happy. And you're also getting to know someone in your local community. And I think, you know, that's a really important part of just being sort of human. Couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, absolutely. And if you heard me kind of go, oh, wow, um, it's because I'm going through a process right now. My father, as listeners know, sadly passed away some weeks ago, but having to go through his house and the things I keep saying that I have to, I can't find a home for is really, it's, yeah, it's sort of distressing almost because it seems so wasteful. Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear about your father. And yeah, unfortunately, you know, that is a situation that many people do find themselves in. They haven't sort of clear through um, houses or sort of move house or just generally have a declutter. And you just think this is like the world's precious resources. And there are so many people who would just love to have this. It feels just so wrong to put it in the bin. And I'm constantly amazed, even as one of Olio's co-founders, you know, I've kind of put something up and think, ah, surely no one will want this. And boom, (laughs) someone does want it. Which is wonderful. It's really wonderful. And when you came up with this idea, I mean, I would sort of imagine maybe your friends and family you know, they might have gone, oh, that's an interesting idea, but I'm not sure that you could actually make that work. They thought I was crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's <laughs> me saying it in a really nice way. They thought that baby brain had got the better of me. I should probably really go back to work as quickly as possible because this idea of connecting strangers to share food was bonkers. So yeah, most people thought I'd taken a departure from my sanity. Uh, luckily though, my co-founder, Sasha, didn't. She immediately got it. And I think The thing that sort of kept us going through all the early sort of head scratching and cynicism 
was we had done some research into the problem of food waste and what we discovered absolutely horrified us. So we discovered that globally, a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away, which is worth over a trillion US dollars. A third? Yep. We're only just starting this food waste tragedy. So a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away worth a trillion dollars. Alongside that, we have 800 million people who go to bed hungry every single night who could be fed on just one quarter of the food that we waste in the Western world. And even in a country like the UK, we have 8.4 million people living in food poverty, half of them not knowing where the next meal is coming from. So we've got widespread waste, we've got widespread hunger. And then the real kicker is the environmental impact of food waste. We discovered that if it were to be a country, food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. And the reason for that is because a landmass larger than China is used every single year to grow food that is never eaten. A quarter of humanity's fresh water is used every single year to grow food that is never eaten. And that food then goes on this enormously long resource and carbon intensive supply chain. And then a third of it ends up being, over a third of it ends up being thrown away. And the vast majority of that ends up in landfill. It creates methane. Methane is roughly 25 times more deadly than CO2. You know, obviously, I've recounted this sort of fairly, this story fairly neatly to you. We, we had to sort of uncover this. We're a bit like kind of Sherlock Holmes trying to figure out what's going on with food waste. And we just couldn't believe that people weren't screaming from the rooftops about the utter insanity of our current situation. And then this urgency with which we want to solve the problem of food waste has only been reinforced by something called Project Drawdown, which is a piece of work by the world's roughly 200 or so of the world's leading climate change scientists. And they stack rank the top 100 solutions to the climate crisis. And last year, sort of right when COVID hit, so sadly it kind of got missed, but they released the sort of latest stack ranking And in position number one, the single most powerful thing that humanity can do to ensure that we mitigate the worst effects of the climate crisis is to reduce food waste. And that comes above electric cars, above solar power, and above a plant-based diet. And the real shocker to all of this is that in a country such as the UK or US or Western Europe, but sadly increasingly elsewhere, half of all food waste takes place in the home. So that means that half of that enormous problem problems that I've just shared with you is down to us. In some ways, that makes me feel hopeful because we've got complete power over that. Correct. And that's exactly sort of, you know, Sasha and I went quite quickly from being just soul destroyingly depressed to like, hang on a minute. This is really, really exciting. If we can just make it really easy for people to give their food away rather than throw their food away, then we can solve half of that enormous problem. And we don't have to wait for governments and we don't have to wait for businesses, all of whom are doing very close to little. We can just empower everyday people. After all, you know, it was billions of small actions that got us into this mess in the first place. So surely billions of small actions can help get us out of it. Well, and, you know, you have been on this journey, uh, I think, for quite a number of years now. I think you started in 2015, was it? Yes. Yeah. So you're six years in and I know you've got over 5 million people using Olio in Mm -hmm. 53 countries, which is incredible. What's the grand vision? Well, the grand vision is an unashamedly big and bold one. We've set ourselves a billion Olioers by 2030. 
Uh, and the reason for that is really simple. We cannot continue to scratch our heads over how we're going to keep global warming to within 1.5 degrees and over how we're going to feed 10 billion people, which is how many people there'll be by then, by 2050, sorry, you know, whilst continuing to throw away a third of all the food we produce each year. So we have got to get to that level of scale over that time frame. And also Olio has expanded now beyond just food waste to address arguably kind of the even bigger problem of, of waste in our homes more generally. So humanity collectively is consuming as if we have 1.75 planets worth of resources, which obviously we don't. And that overconsumption is best exemplified by the concept of Earth Overshoot Day. So Earth Overshoot Day is the day in the year in which humanity has used all the resources that the Earth can replenish in a year. And it was first measured in the late 60s. And back then, Earth Overshoot Day was the 31st of December. So what that means is humanity used in a year, what the planet could replenish in a year. We were living in equilibrium with nature. If you fast forward to this year, Earth Overshoot Day was the 29th of July. So what that means is that every single thing, that every single one of us, seven and a half billion people are consuming after the 29th of July is net-net depletive to the planet, which is clearly not sustainable. And what makes it even more crazy is that, you know, we're all living kind of stacked on top of each other and, and jammed in next to each other. And you've got one household sort of drowning in stuff and chucking stuff in the bin. And there's another house, two doors down, buying the very same stuff brand new. And clearly that sort of linear extractive, destructive economic model, which is based on sort of consumption of new stuff, is no longer fit for purpose. And it's taking humanity over the precipice. And so our vision is of a world that is much more circular, where we're connected with our immediate neighbors so that when we want to consume, we will utilize the resources that already exist in our local community, often available sort of for free, rather than destroying the planet with our endless consumption. And a really exciting product development that we've got coming along within the next sort of month or two uh, to enable us to sort of start to fulfill on that vision is we're launching a new section of the app called Borrow, which connects people to their neighbors so they can lend and borrow everyday household items. So think a drill, a camping stove, a kid's fancy dress costume, a popcorn maker, a tennis racket, books, board games, all these things we have in our house that we don't need to buy. We can just borrow from a neighbor instead. It's so inspiring, Tessa, and it's especially coming from the place I'm in. It just feels so needed. Congratulations are in order too, because I gather you successfully did a Series B fundraising round last month, and if I'm right, raised US $43 million, which is amazing. And presumably, this is going to just help really accelerate your global spread and penetration of different neighborhoods and communities. Would that yeah. be a fair assumption? Yes. It's nothing short of game-changing for yeah. us. We have been so lean for so long, and we've done so much with so little, and we couldn't be more ecstatic to finally have some proper capital to enable us to really invest in the product, in developers, building out that sort of that full product vision to be able to invest in marketing, to spread the word, to be able to invest in our Food Waste Heroes program, which is a model where we now have over 30,000 trained volunteers. These are members of our community who we recruit, 
We train online. We match them with their local business, so their local supermarket, bakery, deli, corporate canteen. And those uh, volunteers on their allotted time and day will pop out the house across the road. They'll go to, let's say, their local supermarket, which might be a Tesco, for example. They will pick up all of that supermarket's unsold food. They take it home. They add it to the app. Within minutes, the neighbors are requesting it. Minutes later, they're popping around and picking it up. So we're really excited as well to be using the capital to invest in growing that Food Waste Heroes program because no business should be throwing away perfectly good food every single day when there are people in that local community who want or possibly even need that food. And Olio provides them with a really simple way to make sure that food is eaten. Yeah. And how how difficult was it to raise that amount of money? Soul-destroyingly hard, extremely difficult. It's the culmination of six and a half years worth of persistence and refusal to give up and go away. So you just have to look at the data to get an indication as to how hard it has been. So in the UK, female founded businesses get just 1% of all venture capital funding. Male founded businesses get 89% and mixed teams get 10%. So the data is uh, very, very much stacked against you, as is the reality. And that's as a result of lots of both conscious and unconscious biases that are held against not only female founders, by the way, but I I should say all kind of diverse founders. And it's really, really problematic. And it's something that makes me furious because in my experience, it's the most diverse founders who are solving the biggest problems facing humanity today. And therefore, I think the lack of funding that goes towards them means that ultimately we are shortchanging humanity and we are kind of over-investing in the passion areas of a very narrow type of person who is the current sort of gatekeeper of capital at all these um, investment firms. Absolutely. Can't agree with you more. This, I think the, the situation is mirrored across the world. Absolutely. Sadly, um, yeah. bro. It really <laughs> is. Yeah, yeah, it really is. You have finally managed to land that Series B though. Yeah. What would your advice be to yourself, say a couple of years ago, that would have helped you, do you think? Well, there's a couple of things. So one, you just, I mean, the degree of sort of emotional resilience that's required is enormous because it is so personal. So just to sort of reassure myself, reassure any other female or diverse founders that no comes with the territory. And I think just really internalizing that is very, very important. Then the other thing that I recommend everybody to watch is a video by a lady called Dana Kanzi. She released it as part of some work for Harvard Business Review, and she did some analysis which looks at how female founders are questioned by investors versus male founders. And in a nutshell, female founders are asked prevention questions, which is all about sort of the downside. So you end up having a very defensive conversation about, you know, what happens if Google decides to come and do this? And what happens if this doesn't work out? What happens if that's more expensive than you thought? So female founders are asked very downside sort of prevention questions and male founders are asked sort of upside and promotion questions. And the key tip that she gives right at the end of the video is that you need to kind of try and turn that around. You need to take those prevention questions and answer them with a promotion response. So that's something that's really important to remember. The other thing that I would recommend is 
looking very closely at the about us page on an investor websites. And if you see a whole bunch of pale male and stale faces staring back at you, then your probability of success, your probability of conversion there is much lower than when the about us page has wonderful diversity kind of smiling back at you. And then the other thing is, if you do have badges or stamps of approval from well-recognized organizations, really make sure to kind of lead with that upfront on your kind of about us page at the start of your pitch. Because Sasha and I found that that certainly really helped make sure that people sort of take us seriously. Yeah, interesting. Well, really, really great advice, Tessa, really great advice. Now, I have to ask before we sort of wrap up, where does the name Olio come from and what does it mean? So Olio means a miscellaneous collection of things or a hodgepodge of things, which if you look on the app, that is exactly what you'll see. It also is the name for a traditional Mediterranean stew. And stew is a dish that you would make to prevent food waste. You kind of pop all your leftovers into a stew. And kind of really importantly, we just loved the sound of the name. We were kind of debating between do we have something like Olio or do we have something that sort of does what it says in the tin, like the Food Exchange Network? And we decided actually we want a word that we can build and create a brand around that isn't going to constrain us. And we loved Olio because we thought it sounded sound sort of slightly elegant and aspirational. And we knew that Olio could not be perceived as being about a bunch of crazy tree-hugging hippies. So we liked the elegance of the word. And then also we just love the two O's. We feel it's really symbolic of sharing, of community, of circularity, of the planet. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And the circular economy. Yeah, fantastic. Well, a question we ask all of our guests, Tessa, is if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? Gosh. Hmm. Well, probably I would have forced myself to do this sort of the deep thinking about what I'm truly passionate about. You know, actually I've always been really passionate about the environment. And so I wish I could have started doing work with meaning and purpose much earlier in my life. But to be honest, I am not a big believer at all in regrets. I just think it can be such a destructive, wasteful emotion. And I believe that everything happens for a reason. Yeah. So I, I'm not in a massive hurry to go back and lecture myself. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good plan to me. If listeners want to learn more about Olio and get on the app and everything, what's the best way for them to do all those things? So if you search for Olio, O-L-I-O, we will come up. If you go into the App Store or Google Play, you will also find us there. And on social media, our handle is at olio.app. Brilliant. And if they want to learn more about you and your stellar career, Tessa, is there a place you'd like to send them? I do write a little bit on Medium. So I'm at Tessa L.F. Clark and I write about the journey, I guess, that myself and my family have been going on in terms of kind of getting our heads around the climate crisis, how to live sustainably, how to reduce waste in your home, and then also how to build a startup. Oh, fantastic. Well, we shall put links to all those things on our show notes page. And can I just ask one extra question? Because I would imagine there's probably some listeners who are as they're listening, going, oh, that really resonates with me. How would I become an ambassador or, you know, or a volunteer? Join the Olio app and you will see lots of, we will request that at multiple points in your um, journey. And if you don't want to kind of wait for that, go onto our website. And at the top, there's a tab that says, help us. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. That's perfect. Well, 
Tessa, thank you so much for your time. It's really inspiring to hear about what you're building and I'm so excited to see where Olio goes and the impact it will have in future as you scale further and you know may may the scaling be as fast and as successful as possible because it's in all of our interests. Absolutely. We'll be downloading the app. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm still staggered at the statistics of food waste. But, you know, I'm actually also feeling quite empowered about just what a difference we as individuals can make. Yeah, I really agree. You know, and it's so great that Tess and her co-founder now have funding to really be able to scale and grow Olio's presence and impact around the world. That Food Waste Heroes initiative they've rolled out is just extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. You know, I can see why investors are excited. Mm. And speaking of investors, Tess are talking about the resilience required to keep persisting until they finally secured the funding that they needed. Despite such bias against female founders, it's such a lesson for all female entrepreneurs. Yeah, I really agree. I, I love that advice that she was given where, you know, when pitching, female founders need to turn any more pessimistic or prevention type questions around and make sure that their answer also includes a future focused positive opportunity growth related element as well it was really important advice yeah absolutely great advice and we'll put that link in the show notes well that's this episode done and dusted we'd urge you to talk with your friends and then all go and download the olio app that's o-l-i-o so you can all easily help save the planet wherever you may be. Absolutely. Let's get to work saving the planet because clearly we all need to do our bit. Have a great week, everyone. Ciao for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.